Yep. Cool. All right. Well, thank you, guys. I think I can probably talk loud enough that y'all can hear me, even in the back. Are we good? Sure. Okay. Yes. Great. Um, like some of you, I was raised in a Christian home. If that wasn't your experience, then maybe you don't know kind of how this goes. I was raised by wonderful parents. I was very blessed. They were really people who lived out 24-7 their faith. But when I was a teenager, I did what a lot of teenagers do, right? I, I looked at what I'd been taught, and I said, this is being taught to me by some lovely people, not not all of the people in the community were equally lovely, but many of them were. But is it true? I wanted to know whether it was true. That was the important thing. And so I started my own quest trying to figure out whether it was true. And very uh, graciously, God permitted me to encounter the work of people who had done a lot of work on this. And so some of what I learned in the process of many years of working on this is what I'm going to show you tonight, what I'm going to share with you. And I just, I like to start these talks with a little motto. So I'm going to take mine from the very beginning of the gospel according to Luke. I know I say pull out your Bibles and you're all going to haul out your cell phones, right? That's how this goes. Luke is writing his dedication to his friend Theophilus and he says, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. I hope by the time we're done this evening, you understand why I chose to open with that because I do hope to give you certainty. The word there is actually the same word, word from which we get uh, our term asphalt. It's a stable place to stand, something solid, something you can depend on. So I made up this little handout thing, and those are like spread around. Does anybody want one and not have one? Because we can, we got more. Okay, then we're good. Um, this is as interactive as you want it to be. And what I mean by that is that you can just sit and follow along, or I can say, does somebody want to read that? And you can put a hand up in the air if you are daring and you are able to find the passage in your Bible. Or, ha, huh, on the inside of the cover, see the little rectangle? I'm going to tell you something you can do just drawing with your pencil in that. So if you want to do that, that's good. If you want to fill in the blanks, you can fill them in. If you don't want to fill in the blanks, that's cool too. But what I want to talk about is evidence that what we have in those first four books of the New Testament, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, is a historically trustworthy account written by people who were pretty close up to the facts and had the habit of writing truthfully. They are writing something that they were witnesses to or that people that they spoke with were witnesses to. Matthew and John, we know from the early church records, were actually disciples of Jesus. Mark and Luke were not, but they knew people who were. And so what we want to do is we want to look at these four biographies. And to start off, here's something really strange. We almost never have biographies of peasants. In ancient literature, this just doesn't happen. 
If you read the histories, the histories focus on the emperors, the generals, occasionally on some notable intellectual like Socrates, the philosopher, but not on peasants. That doesn't happen. When peasants show up, it's just like a sideshow. And then here come the Gospels, and we have four biographies, partly overlapping, yeah, of this one Jewish traveling preacher, one rabbi. How do we wind up with four biographies of him? Well, people thought he was tremendously important. Great, but then you might have a worry. Many people tell us today, oh, yeah, those stories in the Gospels, those are just sort of legends that are embellished and filled out and stuff like that. And maybe you're thinking to yourself, well, I'm not a great scholar. How, how do I know, right? I mean, I'm just like, I read these things. Maybe I grew up learning to take them seriously. Maybe I didn't grow up that way. Why should I trust them? There are other holy books too, right? There's a Quran and the Book of Mormon and the Bhagavad Gita and all this other stuff. So why should I stake my life on this one rather than on that one, right? Why? What's really, is there a reason that I can hold on to? Maybe some of you have never had any questions about that. Maybe you're the kind of people you just sort of feel in your heart that this is the truth as you're reading it. God bless you. I don't mean to shake you at all if that's you, but some of us are not wired that way. I'm not. I can't do that. I need there to be reasons that I can see that don't apply equally to all of the other alternatives. What I'm going to do tonight is to give you some examples of one little corner of the evidence. This is what we call internal evidence because everything that I'm going to do tonight is going to come out of the pages of your Bible or off the screen of your cell phone, if that's how you do it. So we're not going to tell you about archaeological discoveries. I'm not going to tell you about Roman historians and Jewish historians who tell us about parallel things. It's all in your Bible. So this is what we call internal evidence. And maybe you're just wondering at this point, okay, right, so you're telling me uh, you should trust the Gospels, and then what you're going to do is you're going to read from the Gospels. How is that helpful? Hang with me. I'm going to try to show you how that could be helpful, how that's not just assuming what I was supposed to prove. So really, how do we tell, could we tell, that two writings are telling the truth about something that happened historically. Well, maybe you think to yourself, you know, if they both say the same thing, then maybe they're witnesses to the same events. But just think about this for a minute, right? Let your inner skeptic free for a minute. If you read in two different Gospels the same story about Jesus healing a leper, what's the first thing that's going to come to your mind? One of these guys copied it. Of course, right? That's the natural thought. That's not what we're going to do tonight. We're not going to look at places where the Gospels tell the same story in more or less the same words. Instead, we're going to look at some places where they interlock with one another. That is to say, maybe you're reading along in one Gospel and you hit a speed bump. There's some, something you're, you read and you say, well, how does he know that? And then reading a different context in a different one of these Gospels, you'll just find in passing a little detail that answers that question. So there's a lot of question and answer going together. I'm going to start by giving you an example from the Gospel of 
Matthew. So in your little handout, this is over here, it's number one. But if you're the kind who likes to draw charts and diagrams, and you got a pencil, anybody out there need a pencil? I actually have an extra, and I'm not going to be writing with it. So if anybody needs a pencil, we can pass. OK, you guys are good. Um, what we're going to do is we're going to be drawing connections among Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. So I put those names at the corners. And then you can draw little arrows as we go. I'll even tell you how I would draw the arrows. And if you like that method of doing it, you can do it too. So here we are in Matthew. I said in this one, let's go first to Matthew chapter 14. Now, Matthew 14 is going to start out telling us the story of the death of John the Baptist. Y'all know John the Baptist, right? Kinsman of Jesus, forerunner, prophet, killed by Herod Antipas. So what we're going to do is we're going to look just at the very beginning of Matthew 14. So here we go. I'll read this one. Maybe I'll pick on somebody. Frank is up here. I could pick on Frank. Um, at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. This is not Herod the baby killer. This is one of his younger sons after he's long off the scene. Okay? Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He's been like, raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. And then we're going to get the story. Now, I am interested in something about this because you can, go, you can find like a parallel account in Mark. There's a phrase in Matthew that's not in Mark. It can't be borrowed from Mark because it's not there. It's not in any other gospel. And that's the phrase, to his servants. Matthew's the only one who has this. Please read around, double check this later, right? Check me out. So here's the question, natural question, a little speed bump you hit as you're reading this. Matthew, well, who's Matthew? Well, he was a tax collector. Now he's a traveling preacher. He's nobody on the scale of sort of social big shotness. So how does this traveling preacher know what the ruler of all Galilee is saying to his servants, presumably in the privacy of his own palace? Now, maybe the answer is, I don't know. And that's okay. There's a lot of stuff where we can ask a question. We don't know how to answer it. That doesn't mean Matthew had to be making it up, but you know what somebody skeptical is going to say, right? You're going to say, he's writing a story. He's making up whatever details he feels like. That's why he's doing that. There is nothing about this in the context of Matthew that can help you out. Wouldn't it be more satisfying if we could come up with a better answer? Now, here's the beautiful thing. We have four Gospels. We have four biographies of this peasant. So we can look across the Gospels and not just read down through them. So Frank, pull up Luke chapter 8 for me. Do you have a, one of the ESV Pew Bibles? Cool, cool. Yeah. So, yeah, look at Luke chapter 8. This is a list of people who supported the ministry of Jesus and his disciples. Who does it name in verse 3 there. Luke chapter 8, verse 3. Not the story of the death of John the Baptist. Totally different context. Just a list of people who supported Jesus and his disciples. What does it say? Uh, and Jonah, Joanna, right? Joanna, the wife of Husa. Thank you. <laughs> oh, wait a minute. Hold it. Stop. Joanna supports Jesus and his disciples. She's the wife of Husa. Husa 
manages Herod's household. He's his steward. Jesus' followers have family in the highest ranks of Herod's servants. And now it's not a mystery how Matthew, the traveling preacher, might have known what Herod turned and said to his servants. There's a direct connection back to the Jesus community through that. Do you see how that works? It's not the same story told in the same words, or even close to the same words. It's a totally different context. It's a detail dropped in passing. This little parenthesis, who ever heard a sermon preached about Huza? Not me, and I've heard a lot of sermons, right? It's the only time he's ever mentioned. It's just like, yeah, this is who that guy was. And Luke's obviously not writing it to plug a hole in Matthew, and Matthew's not writing it saying, well, I sure hope they've read Luke first. It just happens this way. Now, fiction and forgery are not like this. Anybody like to read novels? Any readers out there? Right. So, nobody picks up the Lord of the Rings in order to find out how to tie off those loose ends that were left over when you finished Moby Dick. Because they're both works of fiction and they don't share a common real world. So, they're not going to interlock like this. They're not going to explain one another. Forgers try to make the interlocking so obvious that they're practically beating you over the head with it. That's not what this is either. It's really indirect. It just happens in passing. Now, this is an example of something, big mouthful word. This is called an undesigned coincidence. It means not done deliberately, not intentional. But one example like this could be an accident. Ever put together a jigsaw puzzle and get two pieces that kind of look like the same color and they sort of fit together and you're thinking, I'm not sure, like maybe they, these belong together, but I don't know. Right. So one example by itself and alone, we might say, yeah, I'm, not, I'm just not sure about that. But once you've got part of the picture coming together with a bunch of pieces and you see the puppy's eye and his nose and part of an ear, then you know that the pieces fit together, right? So what we want to do is not just take one example of this, but do more. And so let's dive in and do another one. So John chapter 1. Oh, by the way, if you're doing the little arrow thing, Luke is explaining something that was puzzling or left us with a question in Matthew. So I would draw an arrow from Luke to Matthew. You can do that or not as you please in the little diagram. All right, so now John chapter 1, after all the fantastic stuff in the prologue where he says, in the beginning was the word and all that stuff, uh, we get to verses 32 through 34. Okay? John the Baptist, this is, bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove. This is at Jesus' baptism and remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. Well, now, John, the writer of the gospel, is talking about the other great John, John the Baptist. But John the Baptist, the guy who's giving this testimony when people are asking him about this Jesus guy, how does he know that 
Jesus is the Son of God. Oh, Cross-check it over in Matthew, right? So this scene here in John is a bunch of people coming in asking a question about John the Baptist. If you go over to Matthew chapter 3, and we look at verse 17. So we got the context is Jesus being baptized. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. There's nothing in the Gospel of John that repeats that incident. And John doesn't have John the Baptist saying, and I heard a voice from heaven saying this. He just said, I saw and bore witness this is the Son of God. And then over here, we're told there was an actual miraculous event. It doesn't look like either of these is copied from the other. If they were, surely in the Gospel of John, they'd have made John the Baptist say something about the voice from heaven, but he doesn't. He doesn't say anything about that there. Just a little interlocking. Oh, here's, let's move on. So if you're going to do that one, something in Matthew explains something in John. So I would draw an arrow from Matthew to John. Let's do another one. Luke chapter 9. I really like this one. I love a lot of the ones that are connected with Luke. This is, this is pretty cool. Um, so this is the story of the transfiguration. Jesus takes a few of his core disciples up onto a mountain and... Suddenly, there's this brilliant light, and he's transformed, and the light, you know, he's, he's like dressed radiantly, and Moses and Elijah are conversing with him, and then everything goes away. And now, what, what do they do after that? What does Luke 9, 36 say? Anybody? Anybody got it? Pulled it up? Go ahead. Xander. They kept silent? They what? I mean, like, if I was up on a mountain with Rod and suddenly he was clothed in dazzling white and Moses and Elijah were speaking with him, I got to tell you what, I'd be running back into Kalamazoo saying, you got to die, unbelievable, right? I would not be keeping silent. This would be the last thing that I would do. Why would they keep silent? Speed bumps. You hit these as you're reading. Ask the question. It's okay to ask the question. There's nothing wrong with that. Why? Why would they keep silent? Let's go over to the parallel account. See, this is a great thing that we have for Gospels. Go over to Mark chapter 9. We get the same story, but little differences in the details. So here we are. We're reading about the transfiguration. And it says, and as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So Mark records Jesus' command, but doesn't say whether they followed it. Luke records they're not saying anything, but doesn't tell you that that's because Jesus told them not to. Which of these people copied from the other? Don't answer that question. I'm a professor. It's a trick. The answer is no. Neither of them copied from the other, right? That's, this, is, this is not one person just copying somebody else's story, writing it down in maybe slightly paraphrased form. Mark records the command, but not the obedience. By the way, there is no command that Jesus makes in the Gospels that is more frequently completely disobeyed than don't tell anybody, right? All right, heal some lepers. Don't tell anybody. Just go show yourself to the priest. Jesus, heal me! And out come the crowds and everything, and so it gets pretty crazy. Um, 
This is not copying, this is interlocking. Now we can understand what was baffling in Luke. Like, why did you not say something? Why would you not say something? That doesn't make any sense. Unless there's more to the story and we pick up the other part. So in this one, we have something in Mark explaining something in Luke. See, if you're drawing the network, anybody doing that, actually like doing the little arrows, do you see how the network is growing? Right? And here's the really cool thing about it. It's not all just going one way. This isn't just Mark explaining everybody else or everybody else explaining John. It actually is crisscrossing the narratives in all directions, and it's going to keep on growing that exact way. Ah, here's one. So Mark chapter 6. This is going to be in the lead up to the feeding of the 5,000. So we're, as we're reading along in Mark chapter 6, so Jesus said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest for a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. So there's a huge number of people around, and it's really crowded, and Jesus is like, let's, let's sort of get out and away from the crowd, and let's have a meal quietly together. Now, why are the crowds there? We don't know. He doesn't say. But one thing that we can figure out is this. Almost certainly, the reason that they're there in the first place is not to hang around Jesus. That's not the reason they're there. Because if they were there to hang around Jesus, it would be absolutely pointless to say, hey, let's kind of get out of the press. It's, it's like Elvis saying, you know what, let's just sort of go off and have dinner quietly together. No, the entire crowd's going to go with Elvis, right? That's not going to happen. So the crowd is there for some other reason, but we don't know what it is. And Mark never tells you. But if you go over to the Gospel of John, John is going to explain Mark here. So we get the same story. By the way, the story of the feeding of the 5,000 is one of the few stories that is told in all four Gospels from the middle of Jesus' ministry. It's kind of cool. So... Go back over to John chapter 6, and here's Jesus with his disciples. Verse 4, now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Passover, that's a big deal if you're a Jew, if you're an observant Jew. You go to Passover because that's one of the major feasts of the Jewish year. So here we have all of these people. Josephus, the Jewish historian, says three million people a year came to Jerusalem for the Passover. Let's suppose he was exaggerating and it was only 300,000 people a year. What would Kalamazoo be like if we had 300,000 people visiting every year? I mean, and you think the Street Rod Festival is a big deal. 300,000 people would be a lot. Three million would be insane. You think there'd be many people coming and going? You think that if you were on one of the roads to go to Jerusalem, there might be no leisure even to eat. Yeah, you'd, you'd have to get out of the crowd. Now, in fact, they see him coming. Oh, but there's a lovely little extra that I will throw in here. So besides the fact that there, uh, John gives us a context that explains why there'd be many coming and going, like Mark says, go on from that. Oh, so the crowd finds him anyway, and they come. And so by verse 39, 
Jesus is just saying, all right, good enough. Uh, so we're, we're going to have to feed these people. So look at, at verse 39. Again, flyover territory for preaching. You don't hear people preach this. This isn't one of those inspiring, wonderful things. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. There's one word I want you to focus on here. It's the word green. I don't know if any of you have ever had the privilege of visiting Palestine. But the grass there is not typically green for very long. Yeah, there's a growing season, but after that, it turns brown. It's an arid, hot climate. Except when it's growing. Well, when is it growing? Well, right around the middle of spring in the month of Nisan. When is Passover? Right in the spring in the month of Nisan. It's exactly the time when you would have actually green grass. Mark didn't have to throw that detail in there. And he doesn't tell you that this was Passover time, so he doesn't connect it up. And John doesn't tell you that the grass was green. Put the pieces together and they interlock. Are you beginning to see? Are you beginning to see the picture emerging here? This is a kind of evidence. It is not the only kind of evidence. There are a lot of other kinds of evidence. But this is a kind you can walk away with tonight and take with you. You've got it right here in your Bibles. Let's, uh, let's do another one. Let's try number six here. Uh, or actually, I didn't do number five yet. This is cool. Oh, yeah, Luke 23. So here's a really crazy one. Jesus has been arrested and... The Jews have decided we need this guy put to death, but they're not allowed to put him to death because technically they're under a Roman governor. So they haul him off first thing in the morning to, who's the governor? Pilate, Pontius Pilate. They haul him off to Pilate. So it says, Luke 23, right at the beginning, the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate and began to accuse him saying, we found this man misleading our nation. Spoiler alert, Pilate doesn't care. That's an internal Jewish matter. That's not, not something that the Roman government is going to come down to. Misleading your nation, says who? I, I'm sure there's some kind of disagreement. Settle it yourself. No, we can't. We've got to kill the guy, and only you can authorize that. Well, and he forbade us to give tribute to Caesar. Did he? Y'all remember the story about tribute to Caesar? What did Jesus say when they said, is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar? What did Jesus say? He, he, he's like, show me, show me the denarius, show me the, the coin. Whose image and superscription does it have on it? Give to Caesar things that are Caesar's. Give to God. That, so actually, he hadn't done that. So I can just imagine the crowd here. Oh, he, he said we shouldn't get tribute. Shut up, you idiot. No, he said we should. That one's not going to fly. And then they come on a third one, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And now we have a problem. Nobody gets to call himself a king in the entire Roman Empire without Caesar's permission. It doesn't matter if your daddy was a king and left you the kingdom in his will. You've got to go to Rome and ask Caesar, preferably with a large bribe in your hand, 
could I have the kingship from my father? Herod the Great's son Archelaus tried this, and Caesar said, let's wait a while and see how it works out. And it did not work out. He crashed and burned. So, oh, you're making yourself a king. So now let's get this. Just read, you're reading along. This is your devotional reading for the day, right? You're reading through Luke 23 is just the next thing on the agenda. So you're reading it through. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. What's that mean? Well, it might mean, yep, you said it yourself. That's what most interpreters think. Or it might mean, well, so you say, you just said it, dude. But in neither case does it mean, who, me, no, there's been a terrible misunderstanding. That is not what you said so means. It's literally two words in Greek. It's like, yeah, so you say. What happens next? So Pilate hears an accusation he's got to take seriously. He questions Jesus on this very point, and Jesus just goes, yeah, so you say. And what does Pilate turn around and do? What's the very next verse here? Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, somebody read this. I find no guilt in it. What? Hold it. Can we do the instant replay? Serious charge, direct question, refusal to deny it. Yes, so what? What is wrong with this picture? Does this, does this fit? Something's missing. It's such a great thing that we have four Gospels. Because over in John 18, we've got another account of this same thing happening. So let's go over to John 18 and look at this account of the interaction between Pilate and Jesus. So 18, verse 36. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom had been of this world, my servants would fight. Am I a king? In a sense, but not in the sense you're concerned about. So John gives us a fuller account of the dialogue. Luke's not telling you anything that's wrong. He's just left some of it out because he's got a compressed narrative. The bit that John tells you about explains why Pilate was like, oh, some kind of philosopher king about, or something like that. That's not the kind of king that Caesar cares about. And he comes out and he says, I find no fault in this man. But it's perfectly plain. As you read the one account, you read the other account, these are not stolen from one another. There's nobody just copying out somebody else's passage and paraphrasing a little bit. In fact, not only does John explain the thing in Luke here, Luke explains something in John. Look back a little bit here. Same passage, right? So just a little bit further back. Start at verse 29. Pilate goes outside. He says, what accusation do you bring against this man? John then doesn't give us the detailed accusations that they tried out. He just gives us this one. They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. And Pilate says, fine, then you do it. And they said, no, we can't put it enough. You have to do that. And so Pilate, that's all he gets in John, right? He's been doing evil. He's a malefactor. So Pilate goes in, and as we have it in the narrative in John, 
what does he say? What's the first thing out of his mouth there? So go to verse 33. Somebody out there who's got a Bible open, just yell it out. Go. Where did that come from? Do, do you start making an inquiry in every criminal case by saying, excuse me, are you the king of the Jews? Is that your first question to everybody? Because there's nothing in John that says that that was part of the accusation. So in John, we get this question that comes out of the blue, but over in Luke, we get a more detailed account of the various charges they were throwing around, and one of them answers to that and would provoke Pilate to ask this question. But in Luke... All we get is the compressed version of Jesus' answer, and Pilate's like, okay, no big deal. In John, we get the longer version of the answer that fills it out, and now we understand why it's not a big deal. Do you see how these interlock? You getting the point? Rod, what am I like on time? I don't want to bore people too much more. Right. Banging or blood will stop us. So, look, you gotta, I got to ask things like this. I'm a professor. You asked me to talk. Do you, could you see the problem that might arise? Yeah. Right? Yes. Right. Obvious. Yes. Okay. Um, let's do a couple more. Let's do number seven. Let's go to John 21. By the way, this is after the resurrection, and they're hanging out around the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus like, sees them from the shore and makes breakfast for them. And it says, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Grammatically, it's almost certain that what he means is, do you love me more than the other disciples love me? Do you love me more than they do? And Peter sort of sounds like he must have been ashen-faced. He's like, uh, Lord, you know that I love you. He doesn't say at this point, I love you more than they do. And then Jesus asks him again, a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? You even love me at all? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love? Jesus is being mean. He's picking on poor Peter. What a way to treat the first pope. Sorry, Protestant joke. Um, like, what is, what, what is up with that? Why is he picking on Peter? Do you really love me more than any of the other disciples love me? Uh, and he's asking him three times, why is he doing that? There's nothing in all the Gospel of John that's going to explain that. But if you're willing to look to Mark and see if Mark could explain something in John, you could go back to Mark 14, which is going to tell you the scene at the... Last Supper. Let's go to Mark 14 and get the context on this. So they, they sing a hymn and they go out to the Mount of Olives and Jesus says, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Peter said to him, what did Peter say? Even though they all fall away, I won't. Oh, really? You're going to be the one guy who sticks it out. You're going to hang right there beside him, are you? 
Really, Peter? Really? Is that really what's going to happen? What happens by the end of Mark 14? <laughs> they all forsook him and fled. And then Peter denies Jesus while they're hanging out trying to get information on what's happening at the house of the chief priest. How many times does Peter deny Jesus? Three times. How many times does Jesus say to Peter, hey, Peter, do you really love me? Three times. You think he's making a point here for Peter? And yet, just what a beautiful thing. He's not rejecting Peter. He's making a point because Peter needs the point made. But after that, he says, feed my sheep, which you can do even if you've made a total fool of yourself, which Peter absolutely had done, right? Talk about sticking your foot in your mouth. Embarrassment, mortification. Peter, the bold guy, the guy who's like always out in the front and, and like, we're, we're going to make this happen. And Peter runs away like a cowering little child. And Jesus uses him anyway. You ever, you ever wonder, maybe after all the screw-ups that you've had, if Jesus could find any use for you? Because i got to tell you, God delights to take small, broken things that have no pretense of saying, yeah, I'm good enough, use me, choose me, and using them anyway. But if you don't realize that you don't deserve it, he has to break you first. Think about that. I mean, really think about that. Genesis 17, God appears to Abram and says, Abram, Walk before me and be blameless. A holy God is telling you, be blameless before me. Who would dare to say, yeah, sure, I'm up for that. I'll walk before you and be blameless. Because I'm just that kind of a like, superhero Christian. Who would dare if you really were confronted with holiness to do that? What does Abram do? He falls on his face. Because it's the only reaction you can have when holiness comes to you and says, be perfect, be blameless. You've got to be kidding me. You have got to be kidding me. Remember listening to a preacher on the radio years and years ago. I just had the particular station on. Hadn't turned it on to get this guy's preaching. And as I was driving along, I said to myself, you know what? This is the most annoying radio voice I think I've ever heard a preacher have. It's not that the content isn't good stuff. The content was actually pretty good stuff. But man, the guy's voice was thin and weak and reedy and grating. And it just sounded like he had some kind of problem with his throat. And it just drove me crazy trying to listen to the voice. And I'm, I'm just driving along there thinking, wow, couldn't they have found somebody better? And as I was thinking that, he said, when God calls someone, you don't look at the person that God has called. You look at the one who's done the calling. Look at me, he said. I practically had to stop the car 
That one hit me in the gut so hard. Yeah, Peter, you're, you're really the most faithful of all my followers, Peter. You really love me more than they do. Do you even love me at all? But I got a job for you, Peter. I got a job for you anyway. So this one's not just apologetics. This one's not just an undesigned coincidence. It, it's also a kind of personal challenge to us, right? You don't get to exempt yourself from serving God because you say, I'm not worthy. You're right. Good for you. You figured that out. Nice. Check. You're not. You are correct. But you don't look at yourself at that point. You look at the person who's calling. Does that make sense? I have more here. But I could, I could come back if you want me back. If, but if you don't, um, there's, there's reading for you. I actually have a little bibliography, and then I give tiny URL download links if you want free stuff. Uh, everything here is free. Nothing here is anything that anybody charges for. It's all public domain. There's no piracy involved. So if you want to read more about this kind of stuff, or if you want to get me back and I'll do some more of it, then it's all good. Over to you, Rob.